0: This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. A lot of information is coming up in the next 60 minutes, so take notes if you wish. Plus, you can also pop on over to lifeelsewhere.co for the details and links. Now, later in the show, a wonderful, moving piece of music from an artist out of Brooklyn. Distant Intervals is the full-length debut from cellist and composer Izzy Hur. Make sure you do not miss this. First, my guest is Dr. Benoit Kampmark. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. We love having... Dr. Benoit on the program, because he always is able to come up with some alternate answers and opinions to some of my questions. And I've got six questions that I've given to him, and we're going to get into them right now. Benoit, thank you so much once again, as always, for joining us at Life Elsewhere.
1: It's a pleasure being with you, Norman, as always.
0: Let's start off, Benoit, with a question that has been bothering me quite, really for quite some time but it came to the sort of a pinnacle uh, what 2 weeks ago the the media's responsibility and and the why it came to the fore is because of the outrage over CNN's supposed town hall with the past president mr trump and i wonder and i want to get your take on this is the pot calling the kettle black with the outrage after all trump was Incredibly good for ratings, as the head of CBS said, before Trump became president. And if I remember correctly, Morning Joe on MSNBC had Trump call in on the telephone regularly before he became president. Now, when he came down that golden escalator, of course, I said, I wrote this, I said, We would be very amiss if we gave this man too much press, gave him too much attention, because that is what he craves and that is what feeds the beast. And I don't think he's capable or should even be anywhere near being president of the United States. But if we give him a lot of attention... Who knows, it could happen. And a lot of people sort of disagreed with me and said, Oh, that could never happen. That's not going to happen, but it did. So, a big long intro there to asking you is the media responsible and should the media take care about who they talk to and, and how they sort of go on about getting ratings?
1: Well, I guess, thank you for that, Norman. And the you know, many of the points you make are very interesting insofar in as they do illustrate that uh, tense or that tension between a subject that uh, should be covered, in this case, a political subject or political figure, um, and whether one is feeding that particular subject or particular figure uh, for whatever reason it might be. It might be for ratings, it might also be because, uh, you know, one wants to be informed about the public conversation more. I think we're way beyond the point about that insofar as the... You know, the, the whole Trump phenomenon and the whole issue of covering him in the United States has always been a, a fraud problem, a fraud mm. issue. Uh, and, and the reason is precisely that he does exist on the oxygen of coverage and the oxygen of interest that comes from that, from being controversial, from being, you know, from carving up this figure as a you know reality TV host, uh, uh, the, the apprentice to all, all, a whole range of sort of things that happen with that the the reality is that he's now become an amalgam of so many things so it's very hard not to cover him in some way and uh, so the media do have a responsibility I'd argue to a certain extent to cover what he does and and or doesn't do the problem is that they have also derived when i say they various media outlets cnn being one and also you know numerous other networks uh, not supposed to certainly and not just fox they have derived enormous ratings um, from the Trump era during the time Trump was in um, actually in office Uh, and and during this time, they were uh, quite happy to run his controversial remarks on a regular basis, his tweets and so forth. And in a sense, when he left office, so when he lost uh, the white house, there was a sense of um, almost mourning in some circles because they didn't garner these particular ratings. And it's no coincidence that in CNN, um, prior to the controversial town hall uh, interview, um, the ratings for the network was something like four hundred and seventy three thousand you know on average um, annually, and then we had on the actual day of the town hall three point three million yes. viewers tuning in so it 's no wonder that in a sense the the response within cNN has been a very uh, a very turbulent one because you have of course the boss uh, Chris Lick who sort of made essentially the point that well. Yes, it, it's a difficult subject. It's not particularly pleasant for a certain number of um, Americans to see clapping for various comments that Trump reiterated. You know, he, he did the same thing as he's done many times before, claimed that uh, he didn't have a, a fundamental role in the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection, but also that ambivalent about various things like the Ukraine war um, and, of course, the old that old canard of uh, the rigged elections. Yes. Um but the 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 fact is that and you know Lick did say and he's he's right about this one that a, a very large number of population of the populace will want to vote again for him should he uh, you know, actually get the nomination for the Republicans. At this point, he is still the lead candidate. Yes. Um, and so, not covering that or not giving him some kind of um, airing is is also, in a sense, a breach. <laughs> you know, even though we can say that you know the CNN's uh, manage- management were being a bit uh, perhaps disingenuous, it would also be remiss not to consider the fact that millions of uh, potential voters for Trump are also, you know, some way should be considered. And I think that's the huge problem in the states. There's been this assumption that because you don't like the nature of an argument, you ban someone or you cancel someone or you ignore them, uh, but it doesn't work like that when it comes to these this kind of politics. You can't disappear, you know, tens of millions of individuals who voted for Trump before, and the huge problem here is getting over that divide of what the information is and what the assumptions is. Trump has become something of a cult figure, you know, he's be- and it's very hard to throw off cult figures you know, from their followers. It's, it's virtually impossible to convince followers that the man, narrative of the man is deeply troubled and misplaced. And so in a sense, the media feeding this is emblematic of it. They are also part of the conniving, the connivance in this. But on the other hand, they also have to give some kind of sense about covering him too, because I still... Remember various outlets in 2016 saying, you know, in the lead up, he can't win. He can't possibly win. Therefore, we're going to to ignore him. We're going to say that he's irrelevant. We put him in the entertainment column or put him in the entertainment section rather than the political or politics section. And guess what? He won. So that's the thing. It's a remarkable state of affairs. And I understand why it's troubling to many. But it also uh, can't get away from the fundamental fact that he is a political reality and a political force. So, in a sense, the the transformation of the White House to an entertainment center, um, the transformation of the White House into a carnival, was already well underway beforehand. And you know, I think we, we have to also be a bit careful to to realize that with certain figures, yes, he's he's seen to be very unpalatable, and you know, and uh, of a particular kind of, uh, if you like, a particular kind of entity and property that is seen to be very. Um, totally a divergence with the political system, but I see him actually as more consistent than others do. I see the culmination of Trump as being, you know, that 2016, and in a sense, its continuation and of being in the limelight one way or the other, has been the culmination of the the broader bankruptcy of high office in the United States. Because the each and every phase of U.S. history was essentially from the time, and let's not forget the patrician Roosevelt, and when I talk about Roosevelt, I'm talking about uh, Franklin Delano yeah, Roosevelt, yeah, yeah, He was yeah, very yeah, good yeah. with media, who was superbly uh, good with manipulating narrative and media you know, during his time in office, and he, he also um, you know, in fact, it was said that after Roosevelt, uh, the presidency was forever ruined uh, because um, every president since then had to smile constantly like an idiot. Um, so it, I think Gore Vidal made that mention when he was um, uh, Dining on one occasion with Harry Truman, Roosevelt's successor, and, and uh, Vidal remarks that when just as they were chatting, suddenly you know in the room Truman's uh, head just moves around and starts you know uh, tormenting itself into some kind of grotesque grimace, and lastly because of the of the nature of the media, it just appeared so cameras had just appeared, so there is this form that. Of the media and relationship with politics, you know, which is very sensitive and problematic, but it's also, I, I think, it is the reality that we cannot get away that the, Trump is there now. What happens, of course, if you interview Trump, you're you're going to have to expect the standard talking points, um, and there is no way that that's going to be in any other other sense. Now, you know, it's also I would argue also deeply problematic for you know the media to make a specific effort not to cover him either because that that's also essentially saying well you know a good number of that part of the states forget about it you know the, the, it, it brings back to the same old problem about how do you engage individuals in any in any political legitimate sense and of course trump is a you know the orange ogre is a very difficult proposition but he is a proposition that's there and that's the problem yeah yeah, yeah. And, and precisely also because he has this very uh, you know, curious uh, relationship of connivance with the media. You he does, you know, the media has a, almost a obsessive pathology about Trump has also generated its own interest. So whatever Trump says or does enchants and terrifies people even more, which means that people report about it even more. So it, it is, it, yes, it is, it, it is a difficult prospect in terms of that, but it's also very important to understand that, He's, he's going nowhere I mean and, and if anything uh, you know, it's he's, he's stubbornly clinging on to the support base and his supporters are proving um ineradicable in, in their in their enthusiasm
0: yes you know just listening to you and we're sort of going we to and fro and I and, and I think you understand and I understand that we could talk about this and go through this for such a long time I think it's almost never ending I mean there is there is that to this Let's move on to number two. I'm calling this the debt ceiling debacle. I just want to get your take on this one. It's right in the headlines right now. Is this a non-story? Is this just something which is basically a fabrication? We don't need to be going through this. And I'm talking about right here in America, of course. This is very much an American story.
1: Yes, well, we have to remember that the debt ceiling uh, conundrum is something that tends to characterize You know, administrations from time to time, and in this uh, in in this instance here, and and this threat of the government lockdown, or the idea of um, you know governments uh, failing to pay services, failing to you know having to put workers on furlough, and all this is something that. We've seen before, you know, we've seen it during the Obama administration. Clinton also faced the budgetary crisis yeah. in 1995. Um, and uh, it's it's one of those uh, issues that simply does not go away. And But the reason of that lies in this. And this is why I know I shouldn't say that it's it's a non-starter as a story, as you were alluding to. But, you know, it is a creature of its own making, in a sense, because what happened in 1917 with the passage of the Second Liberty Bond Act, um, a statutory limit was created to the financing of what Congress could do in terms of issuing, you know, federal federal debt. Yeah. So, you know, bonds, in other words, of course, raising money from bonds and so forth. And naturally, you then pay the bondholders with the interest and so on. Um, and the reason there was a practical reason why that was done, too. It was to maintain fiscal prudence on the one hand, but it was also to give Treasury flexibility in issuing the bonds so that they didn't have to keep going to Congress. You know, governments didn't need to keep going to Congress to authorize it, which would be a sort of a cumbersome thing. Yeah. But, But by virtue of establishing this ceiling, it would mean that each time the ceiling would be reached, there would have to be an authorization then to lift it, suspend it, or whatever mechanism it might be. Um, and not doing so would result or could result, it hasn't happened yet, but could result in default. And once that happens, then the credit rating goes down, the financiers get concerned, uh, the um, the payment of interest goes up, it becomes problematic economically. Um, but it's always interesting to to read and, and listen to what e- economists say on this, because, of course, the the, the U.S. economy is seen as this central monster or this beast in the in the global system yeah. and supposedly reaching the budget ceiling would somehow uh, ter- not just terrible consequences in the U.S., but, but globally. And I'm not necessarily convinced by that. You now, I do think that even though, uh, you know, one has to be careful about it, I don't think it's going to be as apocalyptic as some commentators say. You know, that said, it's also something to remember that I I. Do see that negotiations will eventually be successful, because what usually happens is that, irrespective of if there is a, the ceiling comes close or if there is a, a um, you know, shutdown for a period, it does end. It's it's just a- it's terribly inconvenient, but uh, it's a case of uh, negotiations in this case between the Republicans, you know, and the president, and, and trying to hammer out some arrangement. There will be. Uh, to and fro, but uh, I don't see that. You know, I do see that resolution coming. It's just a question of timing.
0: Yes, which is why I ask: Is it a non-story? It's also in just in my unscientific survey of asking people. Most people that I've spoken to, unless they're really vested in in the stock market or or talking about finances. Really don't seem to have much interest in it, and don't seem to really. It's like, oh, it is, it'll sort itself out. That that seems to be the attitude, which is sort of ties in with what you just said. I guess I, I I'm. It still worries me every time this comes up that that it's something which, it it seems to be. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it just seems to me that there is a sort of a crisis, sort of warning. It's like a tornado warning, yet it 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 never actually happens.
1: Yes, well, it is a very much a case of finance being hostage to political calculations. So, in this particular case here, obviously the various political sides want to extract concessions. So, what they do is they they simply hold this as a kind kind of a, you know, a hostage. So the debt ceiling becomes this kind of hostage or threat, you know that um, you know money, you know, will not be provided in the event and there won't be agreement here. But but the reality is that. When this has happened, when, so when, say, the Republicans have played this game, certainly when when they've uh, gone slow, you know, in the context of budgetary approvals and whatnot, and then, you know, resulting in government lockdowns, it has not, it has not favoured them well subsequently. So they have to also be mindful that, yes, they can extract some concessions in the short run, but if it's prolonged, then the image, you know, their image ends up actually getting tarnished. So it is a case of calculation. And that's why you can see at the moment, you know, I, I, I do think that the prospect of settlement is going to come soon. Uh, and I just don't see this dragging out because they, you know, they also, let's face it, the Republicans are facing their own problems, you know, in terms of how to deal both with the, the, the issue of presidential candidates, but also their own reputation in terms of what's going to happen in the next elections.
0: Well, you've just segued into the next question, which is uh, fits in. So we've sort of almost sort of touched on this. Number three, the GOP presidential candidate race. Tim Scott threw his hat into the ring today. We expect that the governor of Florida will do the same thing in a couple of days' time. But once again, is this just a much ado about nothing as Trump still maintains a massive lead?
1: Yes, and that's precisely it. It's, it's a very curious state of affairs where you, you've got this fabulous uh, dysfunction in the U.S. Uh, at the moment. Between, on the one hand, you know, a, a president uh, who's said that he will be running. You know, uh, this is uh, President Biden who will once uh, the nomination for the Democrats for the next election. Um, but you also have many Democrats who simply did not really want him to do so. But in the face of potential Trump as, as candidate, they would reluctantly or begrudgingly say yes to him. But the majority of Democrat voters do not want him. It's quite the opposite with Republican voters and Trump. So you've got candidates you know, who are throwing their hats in the ring, as you said, Tom Collins and so on, and, and recently um, others, uh, yes, the governor of Florida potentially. But the reality of it is, is that Trump maintains a stranglehold He's taken the Republican establishment, the GOP, by the by the throat, and it's very hard, um, in a sense, for him to let go and for them to let go of him. So, the Republicans risk also facing a, a very bloody internal battle uh, were this uh, race to really heat up. So they have, they face a dilemma too about where they they stand with Trump. It's the old it's the old issue about whether uh, the the guard, the traditional GOP guard, the, the pre Trump guard, if you like, try to assert some kind of control, of whether the moderates, there are virtually no moderates left to speak of in in, the, in terms of the Republican circles, but uh, for those to try to step up, and that's something that will be fascinating. But they will confront this uh, ferocious, very hard-to-contend-with beast called Trump.
0: So let me ask you this, Benoit. Well, does this mean that until Trump... Is no more that the Republican Party is going to be in this. uh, I I, I want to use the word mess, but I I think it's it's a lot more than that in this sort of strange situation that it's not like the Republican, the old, the old Republican Party. It's something completely different now. It's 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 the Trump Party. So is it Mm -hmm. going to remain that way? Are there heirs to Trump that are going to continue on?
1: Yes, I mean, it will. Uh, absolutely. I, I think it is going to remain that way because he, he, say, for example, even if Trump doesn't get the nomination, uh, he's still going to be there. He's going to be lingering. He's going to be, you know, um, engaging in his various tactics. He's going to be a presence and so forth. So it with without him either suffering some kind of crushing defeat, and if, for example, you know, if if someone like DeSantis you know sort of makes the running and uh, ends up convincing the various wings of the party you know even though most of the wings tend to be on the right anyway if he manages <laughs> yes, to yes, yes. If, if he manages to convince them uh, about uh, his own that that he is going to be the vote winner that he's going to be not just the presidential candidate but a presidential winner then things may change because the reality does does remain that. Even though uh, Trump uh, is very much, uh, very much ahead with the majority of Republican voters, how that will translate into votes um, and a, a triumph in terms of presidential victories is another story. Uh, the reality is that you do have to garner some individuals you know, individual voters and centrist voters and whatnot, uh, and DeSantis will, even though he's, <laughs> he does have his own peculiarities. Uh, does have, in some sense, possibly greater appeal um, to those voters. But that remains to be seen. You can also see DeSantis playing very populist measures as well. So the the reality remains this. Uh, Trump so far doesn't look like, short of being rendered illegitimate, short of being banged up uh, and the key thrown away, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to actually see him not figuring very prominently in the race and if not getting the nomination.
0: Yes, yes. If you're just joining us, let me remind you my guest is Dr. Benoit Campmark. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. He also writes for Counterpunch, amongst other publications. And you've really got to check. We'll have a link up on the site so you can see some of his other writings and etc. So we've now segued into the next question. Trump. And the justice system, the more the charges, the more his base seems to support him, not just in a cult like way, but also financially, it seems no matter what goes on, nothing can touch him. But there's so many things going on. There's so many sort of potential charges that can be can be happening. And it still doesn't seem to have any any effect on Trump and his base.
1: Yes, it's it's interesting, um, as you quite rightly say. That potentially one loses count about the the way that he and his conduct at stages have sort of flown, cell uh, very close to the law and breaching it, and so forth. Be it electoral interference, be it campaign advice, be it um, yes, exactly. Also, you know, being found guilty for sexual assault, albeit in the civil context, which has to be pointed out. It's not you know, in in this sense. In the criminal context, but nonetheless, being found guilty for sexual assault and then being laughed off, you know, in the the town hall, as he said, and I still remember those words, and I'm sure many of you listeners would too. When uh, in the lead up uh, or during the electoral campaign in 2016, he he did say that he could shoot someone in broad yes. daylight, and it still wouldn't matter. Yes, and that particular, and, it, and in a certain sense, that still holds true to this day. Uh, his rusted on supporters are such that yes they will they will read every aspect of prosecuting him as an effort to martyr him, and that's really how you know these things have been shaped and 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 to be honest with you the the justice system or shall we say representatives of the justice system have not done themselves any favors um, you know whether it was that dramatic strong armed Mar lago raid by the FBI or whether it was the you know, and let's not forget recently the special counsel John Durham's report on matters related to intelligence activities and investigations dealing with the 2016 presidential campaigns. It, it, there's material there to suggest that the FBI made sure that they followed every bit of material they thought might suggest some kind of Russian connection. But ignore what was being done in terms of um, other campaigns, including the, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign, and any evidence that suggested a lack of a nexus was ignored. And so Darrow's report is worth reading, even though I know, um, I like with so many things, some of your listeners probably say, well, they're not going to read it because it's compromised, because, of well, it takes a view that's not... I wouldn't say unsympathetic to Trump, you know, but it certainly suggests that, say, Clinton has a lot to answer for as well, Hillary Clinton. You know, it should be noted that the Clinton campaign, you know, also did say that let's try to link uh, Trump at any point with Russia, just any point, try to place and link that. And I think that was very striking. The report does mention that. And so again, that. Um, it shows and puts the justice or law enforcement system in a light that can be exploited by Trump's supporters to show that he himself is the victim of uh, a witch hunt, as he likes to call it. Even though of course, a lot of it is simply not true, but that really doesn't matter. The image of it is that he's being affected um, or he's being the target of, you know, what he would like to call say the deep state and and so forth.
0: Mm. You know, one of the funny aspects of all this, Bonoy, and, and I'd like to get your take on this, is that we we talk about things that Trump has said and, and, and some of his minions. For instance, the deep state. We we sort of take this not for granted, but as almost like it's something which we all should be aware of and be knowledgeable about. And yes, it's something which, oh gosh, the deep state, which I'm not so sure that we really know what we're talking about. I don't want to go into a great explanation about it, but it just seems to me that these, they're almost catchphrases that have become part of the vernacular. And again, yeah, yeah sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah,
1: No, no, I was saying, no, no, in, in light with what you just said, the, it, it's it's a very good point that terms are bandied about uh, without, uh, you know, the necessary perhaps awareness of what they really entail. And yeah, the Trump soundbite, Presidency was an example where uh, terms such as fake news or yeah. deep state, uh, you know, came became the norm. But the thing is, what is underlying those terms, and uh, is is something significant, you know, and it's not something to be ignored. A term such as deep state actually does have its its origins you know, and in a long suspicion, if you like, of the center of power in the United States, a long suspicion about what happens in Washington you know, from the periphery, from other states, um, the concern about the the centralization of power and uh, the, the a long debate that stretches right back to the framers of the constitution, the founding fathers between the likes of Alexander Hamilton, who wanted a strong central state with a strong central financial system with a strong standing army, and the likes of Jefferson who said he wanted a decentralized state Right. And he wanted, essentially, uh, America to be a country of yeomen, farmers, prosperous farmers, and so forth. But that was that was Jefferson Mark I. But Thomas Jefferson Mark II, the, when he won his second term in office, he changed tack and ended up embracing more of the Hamiltonian idea of what the United States would be, yeah. a strong central government. So from the idea of central government and power comes the issue of suspicion, too. And let's face it, uh, the various uh, us entities of government have formed when it comes to this the behavior of the cia the wiretappings the the behavior of uh, law enforcement of fbi under hoover uh, the behavior you know uh, under the bush administration of uh, warrantless surveillance of us citizenry exposed uh, subsequently of course uh, then by edward snowden uh, and also you know even during um, obama's time so a lot of this Gives succor, gives you know nourishment for the idea that there are seated officials, officials that are unaccountable or perceived to be unaccountable. They operate in in you know shrouds of secrecy and they pull the levers of the state. Um, and the, and Trump advertised himself as coming from outside that system and saying that, well, I'm going to be. You know, draining the swamp, for example, and that which is sort of like code for I'm going to be taking the deep state on. But then, of course, you know, Trump ultimately was very much part of the very same institutions that he himself was mocking, becoming very much uh, linked to the very same entities that he supposedly would be fighting. And I think that was confirmed by the fact that he refused to drop. Or pardon Assange, for example, Julian Assange, you know, the case is still ongoing against the WikiLeaks founder. When he had a chance to do so, so many individuals who support, who might have supported uh, uh, Trump because of his link with Assange, you know, because he had, after all, benefited from the publications of WikiLeaks in 2016, lost heart when he did not take that measure, because that was almost like an indication that Trump was not really against the deep state, if you like.
0: My guest, Dr. Benoit Campmark, senior lecturer in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies, RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, is my guest. The question before us, and we've got a couple more to go, is the UK, Benoit, beyond repair? It does seem like it's it's got some cracks and some <laughs> problems going on. Richie Sunak and pals seem to be uh, getting a lot of um, a lot of heat. At the same time, we've just had the Charles III show, which in turn has received quite a lot of um, not exactly favourable favorable sort of opinions. Two separate things, or are they? What's going on in the UK?
1: Yes, well, you're right, Norman. Things have not been perhaps the best for the for the current prime minister. The Well, the latest, as it were, in a number of prime ministers of late that Britain has had. Uh, as we know, it's been rather turbulent at number 10. but Sunak, when he did come to um, power was trying to already deal with the enormous mess that had been created by his uh, predecessor. And the reality is that the UK of course is suffering that as are the economies of course, uh, um, rising inflation, finding it enormously difficult to curb that, uh, uh, rising energy prices, and there is this ongoing issue. And when I was in the UK back in, in January, it was it was palpable this sense of foreboding about the uh, the whole Brexit business. It was interesting how many uh, talk shows and how many news items featured individuals who were now, if not having second thoughts about it, certainly expressing doubt about the wisdom of having voted to leave uh, the European Union. Uh, and a lot of it is to do that the, that virtually every economic forecast that comes out, be it from the IMF or be it from whichever international institution it might be, it shows Britain performing um, worst as, um, of any yeah. of the, if not countries in the OECD, then certainly countries in the European area, so to speak. So things are not looking good. Uh, Sunak is steering a very rickety ship. And uh, his own party is also deeply unpopular. Uh, The recent council of local um, elections uh, gave the Tories an absolute pasting. So, um, yes, in addition to that problems within his government, of course, there are issues with migration, a very controversial uh, context in terms of dealing with the number of arrivals across the channel, some very heavy Handed proposals have been circulated um, in both legislation and in policy by Suele Braverman, the uh, secretary you know, of the Home Secretary, uh, in practical notions of detention and, and the so-called Rwanda solution. You know, the idea of then sending individuals seeking asylum to Rwanda. So a lot of these things are uh, bedeviling the policy landscape in Britain, and it's not looking particularly good for Sunak. So that that's from. Per Sunak's perspective and I suppose uh, from the perspective of the coronation it offered a bit of relief from the pa- you know with pageantry and ceremony and so on but that didn't get away from the problems that that's, that seemed to jar on a certain level that this pomp and circumstance was taking place as Britain is uh, enduring this particular crisis and so it, it, it sort of it gave a certain impetus, I suppose, to certain into, to the Republican movement that maybe this hereditary institution may need to be re-examined.
0: Two last questions for you. Putin. Is he going to run out of soldiers? It seems like he's sending all these men to the front line and they never come home. Uh, it's 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 tragic beyond words. How long can this attempted invasion of ukraine continue
1: ah these are of course very important questions and virtually impossible to ask norman I, and i i think a couple of dangerous things emerge from this one is I do not think that uh, the Russian campaign's uh, campaign is going to stop time too soon uh, there are at this point there is still a willingness to pour in troop and troop uh, and personnel and material into the conflict the uh, it seems, even though we're trying to sort of, I'm trying to tease through the accounts uh, because they're contradictory remarks that the symbolic city of Bakhmut has fallen to the Russian yeah. Wagner group, especially. And this is a, another curious internal uh, feature of the Russian campaign is that you don't just have the Russian armed forces, but you have this uh, you know, Russian mercenary Wagner group that operates side by side with the Russian forces. Um, and the Wagner Group did a lot of the fighting, actually, in bakhmut And uh, the uh, the head of the Wagner Group was actually demanding more material and saying that the Russian military was not pulling its weight. Uh, so that creates another power dynamic there. But I think given the fact that Russia has imposed, while well, Putin has brought in his mobilization drive, and given the fact that it's becoming increasingly harder for Russians a russian especially young men to avoid being drafted in because uh, you know they're now special measures of making sure that you know it, they don't leave the country and so on so that's being clamped down upon i do see this continuing it's something that's rather you know it's 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 a slightly terrifying actually because it does risk uh, broadening out it's certainly yes. deep in this in the sense that you know, Ukraine itself was also suffering shortage of supply, there's a constant demand for more weaponry, there's a, you have to remember, it's running out of its Soviet era material. And a lot of the war, the impression given, um, often in news broadcasts is that the Ukrainian army has been equipped with the state of the art modern Western equipment from, from the UK, from, you know, from the United States, and so on. But that's actually very deceptive. A lot of the material if it hasn't not made it to the front, then it's still in a stage where Ukrainian soldiers have to be trained to use the material. Um, the same thing with the promise uh, that the United States is going to consider now providing F-16 fighters. They will also need, be needed to be trained. So there's a lot of a lag between the reality about what is being promised and what is actually reaching the front line. But one thing that is a reality is that uh, on both sides there's an enormous toll in terms of what's being used, because it's a very heavy artillery missile driven conflict. And in that sense, supplies are running short. Um, And, you know, it, it needs, and this is a terrible prospect, but the idea that this could continue will need to have other economies essentially being ramped up to a war footing, whereas Russia is approaching that war footing. Um, so, Russia can actually last, and I, I think will last a lot longer than people will give it credit for, irrespective of the losses, because Russia, despite the sanctions, is actually doing for a sanction ridden economy, it's actually still growing, which is interesting, because people are still buying oil. The Indians are buying oil, the Chinese. gas and so on is also going to other countries and we must remember that the west broadly speaking the western perception of the ukraine war is very different from what we call the global south these days from the view in other countries be it the middle east be it uh, in india be it you know india was very careful not to condemn the invasion and it does business with russia you know russia provides i think 60 percent of india's military hardware. So we need to see it in the broader context. And if we see it from that perspective, there are other other elements there that suggest that this war is going to go a lot longer and will require a solution, desperately require some diplomatic solution. But so far the rhetoric on both sides is victory, to seek victory. And that is a very that's a very troubling state of affairs.
0: Is this why Zelensky has been making these trips abroad, uh, um, the the one recently, well, just in the last couple of days, to Japan?
1: Well, yes. I mean, he's been uh, doing the international, the global circuit uh, as the the PR man for the Ukraine campaign. Um, um, And, and of course, for, for example, he turned up to address members of the Arab League, uh, where there was this uncomfortable sense of, uh, he was addressing states, the Gulf states, for example, and other countries, members of the Arab League. And there was this uncomfortable point where he was also addressing the same audience that also had another individual who has been admitted or readmitted. That's, of course, Bashar al-Assad Yes, Yes,
0: yes, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: So And uh, who, of course, is very much a Russian ally and then supported by, by Russia. So the... You know, Zelensky was trying to sort of play the, the PR card and, and the saying that, well, you know, you need to do more, the you being these particular states have to do more to aid Ukraine and so on. But the message is falling differently and depending on the audience. But you know, in some instances, Zelensky is getting um you know, getting a good hearing, but it would be a mistake to assume that it's all going his way. And I think there is a, a, a huge Desperation in terms of how this war is is going to go, because this famed counteroffensive has yet to appear. When he was asked uh, about, well, when is the counteroffensive going to take place? He, of course, said, well, he can't disclose much, but he has said it's been put off for some time. So, you know, the so called spring counteroffensive, we have not seen that yet. So, um, you know, from Ukrainian forces. So there's a lot of, there is a sense that this is going to be very bloody in a war of attrition. And this is where it, it gets deeply troubling, not just from the perspective of the losses and the bloodshed, but the instability that this risk is causing more broadly.
0: I have noticed, Benoit, here in the United States, that what is going on in Ukraine, unless you once again have some kind of personal interest, it really doesn't seem to be of any concern to most, to the average Joe. And I know I'm generalizing here, but I, I really don't see very many newspaper articles. It doesn't appear on TV unless, of course, there's been a major airstrike. It just does not seem to be in the general general consciousness. I'm not going to say anymore. I think right from the beginning, it wasn't really, you know, there were the flags everywhere, the 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 yellow and blue. But now I don't even see that. I don't see I just don't see the, the concern or the interest. Oh, yes, it's Ukraine. And, and that's about it.
1: Yes, I, I I agree. Well, I've noticed this that in um, certainly when it comes to foreign, e- even in instances like this, uh, with the US funding a foreign conflict or being involved and, in, you know, albeit by proxy in a foreign conflict, there's very little interest domestically, there, there's, of course, interest amongst the think tank circuit and the pundits. Yeah, but it, it doesn't really extend beyond that. And I, you know, and this is where someone like—not um, not to mention the orange ogre again—but uh, someone like <laughs> like Trump is onto something when he he doesn't really care one way or the other when he's talking when the Ukraine war is being discussed. You know, to him, it's not something that matters to his base. It's not something that matters to many voters. It just doesn't figure in any context. It would figure if once U.S. soldiers get involved and they get into harm's way. That that becomes a different story. But so far, that's not the case, and. And that's why, you know, a lot of these things in terms of foreign policy and U.S. involvement, I think the same thing with AUKUS. AUKUS doesn't figure very much in, you know, most, I think most Australian, sorry, most American voters, most voters in the U.S. uh, would sort of wonder AUKUS, what's that? Mm -hmm. Uh, What's that special agreement? Is Is that a whale? Uh, you know, it's it's one of those strange things that these things, even though from a foreign policy perspective, are very significant. It signifies, for example, deeper U.S. involvement and I would argue a dangerous forward defense strategy in in the Indo-Pacific to target China using Australia as a forward base. Uh, I, it has great significance for Australia, but I think from the U.S. perspective domestically, it hardly registers.
0: Talking about things that don't hardly register. Julian Assange, you and I have talked about this terrible situation many times and you've given us updates. I don't want to linger too long, but I do want to ask you if there are any updates, if you can just fill in just a little bit for us, for those that are concerned. And I know a lot of my listeners are concerned about what is happening to Julian Assange.
1: Well, certainly, uh, Norman. Well, so far, the all I can really say on that front is that the the campaign uh, regarding his particular release continues. Uh, there is, uh, you know, you, it's very heartening to see, for example, a number of European politicians get on board and say that this has to end. Uh, be it in the European um, Parliament, be it in various countries, it's very heartening to see, you know, individuals such as uh, the Brazilian president uh, make his voice clear about this and. Yeah, and then even though I have to say though it's been not particularly that I always uh, get a bit discouraged when I I see the Australian effort because the Australian effort has so far failed. Not that I expected it to do much, but the quiet diplomacy stance of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has certainly not worked. Um, But in in Australia itself, there is certainly also a a gathering as a gathering. body of views, if you like, to say that if you can't convince the United States as a friend or as an ally, you know, in these kind of things, what use is the alliance? So there's a lot of those discussions happening. But in terms of the actual logistics of it, it's a case of waiting for the appeals process to go. And one of the things that's so distressing in the context of Assange's case is that essentially, he is being withered away by judicial and legal processes. He is being you know, it, it, I, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that he is being subjected to a form of, uh, you know, instrumental procedural assassination in slow motion. Yes, because, because his health is is a failing one. It's 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 declining.
0: Yes. You know, he has
1: suffered. He, he did suffer. You know, something amounting to a mini stroke. You know, he is not well. He is in the maximum security facility in Belmarsh, which is, you know, uh. Belmarsh certainly can't be equated to ADX Florence, you know, the vicious uh, maximum security equivalent or, you know, the facility in Colorado where Assange would be sent. Yes. Were he to actually be, you know, convicted in the United States. But but Belmarsh is still a brutal place. And, uh, you know, he is locked up with people who have been convicted on actual terrorism charges. So it's a very strange state of affairs. And he You know, he's suffering and it's an ongoing process. So there is a lot of groundswell and there's protests and there is a lot of measure being made and so on. But the reality is that the powers that be, especially the United States, has shown no sign that they will drop this prosecution, which is very troubling. It was very ironic in some ways that the recent you would be familiar with World Press Freedom Day, Uh, On that very day, uh, there was a lot of talk from Anthony Blinken uh, of the State Department and and a number of U.S. officials celebrating World Press Freedom Day and saying how, you know, the United States is not in the business of chasing journalists and publishers. (laughs) It was pointed out by a few individuals to Blinken and company that that was not the case. What about Assange? Uh, because uh, other journalists are being chased up. For example, uh, uh, Goshenko, I think, in uh, in Russia is uh, being chased up uh, for very same charges being used against Assange now. So that's, you know, we can only continue doing this and reminding the powers that be what needs to be done and what should be done. But I fear that the momentum there is such that it's being, it's rather hard to stop in terms of the desire to get Assange across the pond.
0: His father and wife are still actively involved in in doing the best they can. Am I right in that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, so um, John Shipton, who's uh, Sandra's father, is very much involved in, you know, doing his. He, he's doing essentially what Zelensky is doing for Ukraine: making uh, trips, trips, you know, yeah. across countries, you know, meeting delegations, uh, drumming up support when he can. You know, uh, also along with uh, Assange's brother, Gabriel, so that uh, a lot of these efforts are being made. And of course, Assange's tireless wife, Stella, uh, is uh, very much involved in that, too. She's going to be visiting Australia soon as well and, and uh, um, yeah, promoting those things. I also want to point out that Shipton has also been promoting his uh, or documentary that features him extensively called Ithaca. You know, and that's the one that also features the the plight of Julian and and how he's um, you know the the whole campaign. Oh yes, like, I read remember. about
0: this. Yes,
1: yeah. So that's something maybe your listeners, uh, your viewers might be interested in too. which right. yeah, is the, the documentary that yeah. deals we'll get specifically some more with that case. Yeah,
0: we'll get some details on that very very quickly. Am I right in thinking that that Chelsea Manning is back in in custody again? Is that am I am I right?
1: I have to chase this up. Uh, yeah. I had read. These rules but as you, as you know, the um, uh, some of this is gurgling stuff, and it's uh, you have to sort of spend time really digging to clarify yeah. this. But I, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I, I will, I have to say, I will yes. have to chase the back and see whether whether there, there is another sort of uh, um, you know encounter with with legal matters, if you like. But that's something I will have to chase up. Yeah. And a quick,
0: quick, quick one is Snowden. Just that's it. It's over. He's he's in Russia. We're not. That's it. It's over and done with that that situation.
1: I, I, well, <laughs> yes, well, so far, well, so so far with Snowden, I, I think the the thing to keep an eye on with Snowden is that he does have some interesting material that he does write about from time to time. He does. Uh, it's not for me to to promote his Substack profile, you know, but uh, you know, he certainly does write uh, when it comes to matters of the intelligence community. He's certainly rather interesting to read, uh, but at this point, short, you know, it's a bit spare in details where he is in Russia per se. But you do see him. Certainly when he, he comes up with the next uh, security measure or the next uh, intelligence surveillance measure, he's always good value to see. But yes, at this point, I just don't, I don't see where else he can really go because it's very clear the moment uh, he steps into a, a U.S.-friendly state, let alone the U.S., so he's going to be nabbed. There's no question about right, that. Yeah.
0: Right, right. This, of course, leads me to say to you that I've got all kinds of other questions, but of course, as always, we run out of time, Benoit. So we'll have to get you back on again. A frequent guest on the program, somebody really enjoy talking to, Dr. Benoit Campmark, has been my guest. I just give you a little reminder that he's a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban, and Social Studies at RMIT <laughs> University in Melbourne, Australia. You can read a lot of Benoit's writing in Counterpunch and I advise you that you go to the link that I'll have up at lifeelsewhere.co Benoit once again thank you so very much for taking the time for your valuable input and joining us right here at Life Elsewhere
1: Norman's always a pleasure anytime
0: a very large thank you to my guest Dr. Benoit Campmark the link to Benoit's Counterpunch articles is up at lifeelsewhere.co now to take us up to the closing credits exceptional music from izzy Hur, a cellist and composer out of brooklyn distant intervals is her debut album which she says is an exploration of memory dreams and the infinite possibilities within imagined worlds centered around themes of becoming and transformation the music encompasses The liminal space between our past and present and future selves our ever-changing relation to personal memories the ideals and dreams we have for our futures and the distance of idealism of these infinite versions of self classically trained as a cellist at juilliard izzy composed the album during a period of musical and personal transformation as she moved away from traditional classical performances and notated music while also beginning a long awaited process of gender transition now you'll understand why the clever name makes sense go to lifeelsewhere.co for the link to Izzy hers music and do make sure you check out the evocative video till next time be well Be safe, and you know it makes sense. Be nice. Bye-bye. Have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com dot co that's c o